0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
1: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to a special summer edition of The Feast. Last month, we brought you the story of Arizona's first cocktail, with Joshua James and Phoenix's Clever Coy Bar and Restaurant. This month, we're taking a deep dive into the dark side of one of America's most iconic brands, Jell-O. Allie Rowbottom, a descendant of the family who purchased the patent for Jell-O over 100 years ago, has just written a moving portrait of the women in her family, the so-called Jell-O Girls. These were women whose lives were changed by the family's connection to this beloved brand, sometimes for the better, and more often for the worse. In her book, Jell-O Girls, A Family History, Allie weaves together a history of Jell-O itself, from its early days as an easy and cheap pantry staple for Depression-era housewives to its heyday as a convenient, party-perfect food in the 1960s, and, of course, its transition in the 1970s and its increasing associations with diet food. Using her mother's notes and memoir, Allie traces the lives of the women in her family in parallel with the changing expectations of women in America throughout the 20th century, particularly in relationship to the kitchen. Already called rich and illuminating by the New York Times, Jello Girls is available beginning July 24th Wherever fine books are sold. And we recently had an exclusive chance to chat with Allie about her deeply personal and introspective work. Tonight on NBC. Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department, please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor. We'll break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
1: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
0: Uh, my name's Allie Robottom. I live in Los Angeles, California, and I'm the author of Jell-O Girls, which is a history of Jello alongside the history of the women in my family, uh, primarily through a feminist lens, and I wrote this book because it was a the story I sort of had to write before I could write other stories. It gnawed at me incessantly asking to be written, um, especially because my mom was very devoted to the story herself. And as she got sick uh, towards the end of her life, it felt even more imp- imperative to write the book myself.
1: Absolutely. And I think, actually, you know, when I, I started reading the book, um a lot of why you decided to write the book is actually kind of folded into the early part and actually even the end part of the book, you know, that kind of frame that you set um, about your mother towards the end of her life. And I was just wondering maybe if you, I don't want you to reveal too much about what's in the book, but maybe that that element, that connection to your mom's writing, um, that that gave you perhaps a little bit of that impetus to write.
0: Sure. I mean... I think my mom and I were so connected through language and words from a really early age in my life um, and so it became really natural that her obsession with this story would become mine um and that her attempt to put into language what it was that she was feeling about these intersections between jello and illness and her life and her mother's life and my life um her failure to to really articulate that uh, would fall to me to sort of try to redo and try to try to actually suss out. I suppose uh, she read to me from a really early age, and I think more and more as I sort of think back on her life and mine and my life as a writer, I feel like her influence when when she would sit with me at night and read was was so so supreme and and so important.
1: And I think, you know, it's, and, and as you were mentioning, you know, so much of this is you and your mom's relationship, your mom's life. And then, of course, as you were also mentioning, it goes back another generation to your grandmother's life. Um, and these fantastic stories and such rich stories of these three women in some ways are, again, I don't want to use the term framed, but there's this underlying element, which is, of course, your family's connection to Jell-O, which I, I'm hoping you can maybe just give a very brief explanation to perhaps why why the, the name Jell-O Girls is so um, appropriate in this instance.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, my, let me see, great, great, great uncle by marriage <laughs> Bought the patent to Jell-O uh, in 1899 for $450, and he bought it from a man named Pearl Waite, who had uh, basically invented um, Jell-O specifically, which you know was taking already existent powdered gelatin and then adding flavor to it to make it, you know, the light and delicious thing we know of today. Uh, so, Order Woodward bought that patent and then my great-great-aunt, Edith, married orator's son, Ernest. And so I say in the book, it was through luck and through marriage that my family came into the Jell-O fortune and the Jell-O legacy. Uh, but Edith and Ernest had only one child. Um, and so my grandmother, Midge, was was very connected to her aunt and very much sort of like a, a surrogate daughter to um, Edith Woodward and That meant that, you know, not only was there that that family connection, but uh, we were very, or Midge and and my mother were very close to Edith and to Ernest and to the whole Jell-O fortune. And then when Edith died, she bequeathed part of the fortune to Midge, and then it trickled down to my mother and now to me. And that's sort of how great, great legacies are passed down, I have come to understand. (laughs)
1: And I think then it's so appropriate in in your book, Uh, there's this, you present almost a parallel history of your family and specifically, you know, focusing on your, I mean, you do tell the story of of your family's kind of origins with Jell-O, but also specifically focusing on your grandmother, your mother, and then you. But in parallel, there is the i don't necessarily want to maybe the right word is evolution of jello, but uh, the changing nature of jello both in your family's history but also as it affects the town in which the major factory was located but also within america itself and I think that's such a fascinating multi layered way of approaching it and I was just thinking how how did that parallel structure kind of come about? How did you um Figure out how to how to organize those parts of the book because um, I found that so fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's a it's that I found it to be a fascinating process too because I really I mean this book took four years for me to write and t- most of that time was really just trying to figure out what structure to give it and what was important to the story. So Jello was always in there, but it it became more and more of a character as I. As I figured the book out, and as the book revealed itself to me, um, but really, the way that I, I came to tracing Jello with that that historical lens um, was by working with my mother's memoir and writing her her narrative first. And as I did so, I I was like, oh, it's so interesting! Like that, you know, she was in college, and it was like the '60s, and what was going on in the broader culture during that period of time. So I started to ask those kind of questions and then I started to think like, well what if I instead of exploring what was going on in the culture at large, I was I explored what was going on in Jell O and Jell O's marketing and used that as a mirror for not only my mother's life but what was going on in the culture so I could fold in cultural preoccupations jello and my mom and and create this more unified story.
1: And I think it's so interesting because as you were mentioning before that this this book has a very um you know, I think uh, forthright feminist lens, as you as you were mentioning earlier, um, and I think it's very interesting. You know, you are obviously focusing on on the women in your family and, in some ways, struggling or um, confronting ideas of femininity, um, roles, gender roles, things like that. And then the parallel with cello is this change in its own role in the quote unquote kind of domestic sphere and its relationship to to femininity in America and I was just wondering if you might maybe unpack a little bit of that because I think the the story you weave with Jello and its relationship to women in America is so fascinating of you know what what do the advertisements and the recipes of Jello how do they convey a sense of what the expectations were for women at given points in American history, mostly through the 20th century?
0: Sure. I mean, I'm sure that, and I, like, I discovered this um, sort of way of looking, of looking at history and thought, oh my gosh, this would be so fascinating to do this with other products because I think it's probably quite common. Um but jello is is unique because it came about during a period of time when women, and you know this is still partially true today, but uh, women were marketed to as the the people who were in the kitchen. Um, so, for example, when jello first 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 started its marketing campaigns um, around nineteen o four, let's say. Uh, and introduced the Jello girl, which the book obviously takes its name from. The idea was that um, with the coming industrial revolution, women were losing their um, hired help to more lucrative factory work, and so were forced to enter the kitchen by themselves. So this idea of jello as a convenience food, um, so easy that even a girl or a child could do it, was something that, that um, the brand really pushed in its advertising campaigns. Um, Because really, I mean, and I was so fascinated to discover this, but uh, women and particularly women who were privileged enough to be, um, to hire help uh, were suddenly aware that they had no idea how to roast a chicken or prepare a meal really. Um, So Sort of where the book begins with its its tracing of the marketing campaigns, but then we see you know the depression comes and Jell-O shape shifts to market itself as an efficient food stretcher, and the same goes for the um the Second World War where you know rationing meant that uh, sugar needed to be parsed and and carefully doled out, and Jell-O was a good way um to do that or to you know use Jell-O instead of sugar. So we saw the brand instructing instructing women primarily how to how to use it, Um, and then later, you know, like say in the 1970s, we saw Jell-O attempt to market itself to sort of newly single women or uh, independent women who were enjoying city luncheons. Um, Over time, Jell-O also really worked to market itself and still does today as a diet food. Uh, so, I, you know, the book goes through and sort of shows that progression and that jell sort of odd relationship with feminism, because it, it's not as simple as Jell-O just being anti-feminist. I think, you know, at times it, it tried to keep women in the kitchen or to urge women to stay in the kitchen. And then at times it was, you know, when that wasn't quite working, trying to appeal to women who would maybe be eating out. Um, so it you know it's still evolving <laughs> as a lot you know a lot of things are but i i think that the book is hopefully concerned with with just showing that that fluid and um pretty uh intricate relationship between jello and and women's agency
1: mhm and i i i think it is an important element that you don't oversimplify it that that there is this attempt to change and um, reflect uh, maybe developments in gender roles or um, you know uh, subversions of gender roles or changes to gender roles and whether or not it's it's always chasing that change or it's meeting that change and its own successes and inf- difficulties I think is is so interesting again, paralleled with the personal histories of of your mom and your grandmother and of course yourself um with the kind of added layer of being so fundamentally connected in this familial way to this product. Um, and it's so interesting how Jell-O plays a role, and maybe it's not so much a character, but it's this presence throughout your grandmother and mother's life that's sometimes malevolent, sometimes sympathetic. It, it does change itself depending on... The time in their life or the situation that they're going through, their own kind of um, state of mind and, and their own current, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of relationship to their family and their family history. Um, I think that is, is a really fascinating element of this, of this book. I mean, I'd love to know a little bit about how, you know, you do, of course, mention it in, in the book, but your own experiences with with and growing up in this family. Just maybe if you could talk about some of your early memories with either your mom or just yourself of of knowing that this product is, is part of your family legacy. It's a funny
0: thing to look back on because as a little girl, you know, my mom would, would tell me stories about Jell-O and, and our history, but I, I'm not sure if it's this way for all kids, but it certainly was for me that I just, I was so in the present and so immersed in in my life and my reality that it just seemed like another story. Um and she would she had a bunch of like jello paraphernalia like um an old tin with a jello girl on it and some old um like framed prints of old advertisements and stuff like that that hung in her studio. Um and I thought they were cool. <laughs> I, and I would look at them a lot. Um, and But other than that, I really only addressed the story or was aware of the history when I would tell my friends about it. Like um, at school, if there were like, you know, jigglers served or that kind of thing, I would tell people and they would probably disbelieve me. So it it was was not until my mom and I went to Leroy, New York, where she grew up and where Jello was manufactured until the 1960s when um it moved to Delaware. Uh it wasn't until we went to Leroy for the celebration of Jello's 100th anniversary that I kind of got it, I guess. Um and again, like I just didn't really realize that there was an inheritance. I didn't realize really the connection until then, when I was meeting people around town and and understand seeing seeing the Woodward tomb in the cemetery or seeing um, the giant portrait of my great great aunt Edith that hangs in the museum there. That kind of stuff that I like really acknowledged or understood our connection to Jello. Um, it my mother didn't make it, so it wasn't in our house a lot. Um, it was just sort of a thing that I would eat out in the world, but rarely.
1: Again, getting back to the impetus to writing the book and kind of discovering, well, I don't know if discovering is the right word, but it kind of experiencing your mother's own writing as she had written and kind of compiled as I, I'm not even going to attempt the the pronunciation that you talk about in the book of her memoir, but it's <laughs> the memoir. Memoir, yeah, memoir. There we are, the <laughs> memoir. Um, and I just love to know a little bit about uh, the actual experience of you reading your mother's writing and and kind of your discovery of her own experiences by her own hand, but of course her reflections upon her mother midge um, and you know her experiences as a mother and a wife and kind of her experiences in the family of jello um you know what was what was that process like of of going through her through her writing
0: i mean it was kind of amazing i always so my mom wrote her memoir <laughs> for many many years and um tried and then Failed and then tried again, and she was relentless with it. So she started when I was a, a kid, and when I was even when I was a teenager, she was um, giving me pages to read. So I was accustomed to her voice and her work, but it wasn't until before, like sort of right before she died, and then after when I was working on this book, that I really. Saw stuff about her writing that I probably blocked out before or was able to read and really understand and empathize with things that she had gone through that, again, I just was probably as a coping mechanism, just not letting myself um, acknowledge or feel. For example, losing her mom when she was 14, I mean, I always knew that that had just profoundly shaped and changed my mother's life. It was her grief was a presence in her life and it was a presence in, in our relationship. Um, but I never, I just, I just couldn't understand it until I lost her and losing her was what helped me to really write her experience of losing her mother with, um, sensitivity, I guess. I, it was at times jarring, I suppose, to read her understanding of, of stuff about my parents' marriage or or different traumas that she went through. But at that point, I guess, she and I felt so – she felt like such a part of me that um, I experienced it as sort of my, my own trauma that there might be like – something really wrong about that, I guess, but uh, it felt that way when I was reading it. It it sort of feels like something that has happened to me now, too.
1: You know, I think you really have brought your, your grandmother, and of course your mother as well, to life um, through, I think, this ability to empathize, as you were saying, you know, that that through some of the shared experiences that you've, these now three generations of women in the same family have have experienced, um, the you get this impression that you're not reading um, when you read the accounts of Midge or you read um, parts of the life of your mother Mary. Um, something that that is distant or removed, you you get this very vivid emotionality to it. You get this very sense of these women's experiences and and struggles and frustrations in some ways, in many cases. Um, and I think that's, that's a unique gift to be able to do that, um, especially pulling from your own history, but also pulling from, um, you know, your mother's writing, which, again, has this very personal connection. Um, was it difficult to write those elements. I mean, you were mentioning that there were some struggles, you know, when you were reading elements about your parents' marriage and things like that, but how did you kind of work through that process?
0: It took me a long time. I guess it. I ended up including one of the things about my mom's memoir that was um, challenging for her and for me was that she, and I think that this is really common, like I talk about this with my students a lot, but it, it, she sort of threw in everything that had ever happened to her. And it, it can be so challenging to decide what stays and what goes when you're writing about your own experience because, you know, you look back on your life and, and one thing leads to the next thing and everything feels important in some ways. Um, I mean, I think for me, one of the, the difficulties with working with my mom's material, but also something that I, I hope that I was able to do for her in a way in this book was I was in parsing (laughs) the, the really emotional and true material from, from the sort of extraneous um, and then creating a narrative that of course left stuff out, but ultimately I hope gave a really clear and and true portrait of, of her experience and her mother's before her Uh, working with my grandmother's letters and was, really really interesting. I'd never been that interested, I guess, uh when I was younger. But then suddenly when my mom was sick, I I felt so compelled by my grandmother's voice and it felt like reaching into the past to try to reclaim her in some ways. So that was a really a really amazing experience. She became round and deep to me in a way that she never had before. And I, I felt like I got to know her in a way that, that felt very special. I'm not sure if I answered the question.
1: <laughs> I can only imagine it, the difficulty in trying to, when you have such a personal connection to these pages, um, trying to 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 come up with a, a narrative um, and and to try and, again, as you were saying, kind of sift through and see what what can work that that speaks to the the truth of the the story that you're you're writing um, and the history of these women's lives. And I think, you know, from reading it, it, it's very successful. I just was wondering, you know, what that process was like for you, um, because it doesn't seem like an easy task, that's all.
0: Oh, it was definitely daunting um, and overwhelming at times and also just exhausting, I guess. I I've spent a lot of time writing about the past and about um, sort of like traumatic memory and that kind of stuff. And I tend to not realize it until I'm done with whatever I'm working on. But it is so emotionally taxing to wade through, you know, your own trauma or somebody else's um, and to put yourself in that, that frame of mind. I mean, especially because for a lot of this, I was looking at my mother's work after she had died and coming up with stuff that I wanted to talk to her about. And it was very bittersweet. Part of it was, you know, sort of like visiting her. Every day I would go to my computer to work and it felt like sitting down with her in a way. So I was sad when it would end, but I also realized that I needed to release the project and and put it out into the world in order to move on with my life
1: yeah the, it's it's always important the, that aspect of, of closure, right. You can work on a piece forever, but especially maybe in this sense, the the publication does represent this this way of, of putting it out into the world and, and then giving you space to move on with another another project as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I said this I think at the beginning, but this book just felt like um, the story. I mean, I think a lot of writers feel this way, but like the story that I had to tell before I could move on to others. It's comforting to me to know that my mom would be really happy to have her story out in the world. I think she she would probably feel a little bummed that she hadn't written it. <laughs> but I think overall, she'd be really happy.
1: And I'm sure I'm immensely proud as well. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I the one other thing that I just wanted to, to ask about, you know, your process of writing the book and using your mother's writing, um, because as you read or as I was reading the book, um, you know, there was this push and pull of the presence of Jell-O within all three of the lives that you touch on, your grandmothers, your mothers and yours, and an element of trying to kind of Get Jell-O, not not really want to be part of the Jell-O family, um, trying to minimize it in some way. But yet Jell-O keeps popping up um, in (laughs) surprising or or, uh, kind of unexpected and paradoxical and in many times bittersweet ways. And I was wondering if you found that same popping up presence in your mother's writing that even though perhaps you know it wasn't in the house as you were growing up you know it was this this lurking presence or kind of character that's always in the in the background and and when you were going um going through your mother's writing
0: absolutely i mean my mother's writing was so dark in so many places um especially in terms of her recollections of her Adolescence uh, after her mother died in Leroy, and how, um, which was where Jello was made, and most of her family still lived at that time, sort of her descent into mental illness, and then um, her decision to admit herself or to allow herself to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Um, and Jello, like, because that time was so dark. But because she was living in a house and in a town that was so enamored with Jell-O and her family's connection to it, there was such a preoccupation with the contrast between her grief and her sense of um, just sort of being unmoored in the world and Jell-O as this signifier of stability and, Light and dainty, delightful dessert, you know, so she was <laughs> she was very preoccupied with that, and it did give me a lot of ideas as to how to um, address that contrast and address the way that my mother saw jello as this sort of ominous presence,
1: <laughs> mhm, absolutely, and again, as we were talking about before, paralleling that with its changing perception. In kind of America and these changing oftentimes very dramatically um, gender expectations in generals and and the company attempting to either keep up or, or not really uh, towing the line in some way, shape or form, I think is is a very interesting parallel um, and I don't think we one we see enough of um, in topics that, that look at food history, um, and which is why I was so so delighted by the way you incorporated food history with your own personal history and your family's history um, in the book. I, I think there was a, a quote that you gave in another interview um, that you said, food is fraught with symbolic meaning, and I thought that was such a wonderful phrase. Um, and I, I just... Uh, there's i think no almost better way to sum up this book than than food is fraught with symbolic meaning
0: <laughs> i feel like that will go on my headstone <laughs> like i i definitely feel so in the book it i go into just briefly um my sort of adolescent and post-adolescent struggle with food and um ultimately getting treatment for an eating disorder and just looking around this table of women all having their individual emotional journeys with the food on the plate in front of them. Um, Because, you know, at at a treatment center like the one where I was, we would eat communal dinners and then process how we felt about the food. And and looking around the table, you realize that that I think probably for everyone, although it was very... um, very apparent at that specific table, but, you know, a piece of pizza or a plate of pasta or whatever it is, it's not just that, it's something deeper. Um, And so, you know, we're all constantly walking around the world, bringing our own, our own symbolic or projecting our own symbolic weight onto the food we eat for better or for worse, it's just sort of the way we are. And I think it can actually be quite a beautiful thing in a lot of cases. Um, In terms of jello, obviously, it's, it's been a challenge for my, the women in my family. But um, yeah, I mean, I, it never ceases to amaze me how fraught food is.
1: (laughs) And, and I think that's, you know, a unique success of this book is to be able to talk and explore that, that fraught, relationship on so many levels that you have the fraught kind of national corporate level. You get into it as well with the fraught, complicated relationship between, you were mentioning, you know, the the town of Leroy, like the town of Jell-O with Jell-O, and it's changing relationship. And then you have this very unique relationship with Jell-O through your own family's particular history with this food. And then, of course, yes, this, the a, a personal encounter with, you know, uh, a struggle with food and and a relationship with food, um, which, again, I just find amazing that you have been able to layer this book um, so so well addressing each of those elements in turn and in such a vivid, full way. Um, And I think that's absolutely a success of this book. Oh, thank you. I I would love to know what your what your future holds now that now th- now that this book is out now that this is the book you needed to write before writing other things. Um, what are the what are the next next plans? Of course, th- this is the awful interview question where you've done all this work and this book is just being published now, and we're already asking. So uh, so what's next? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I
0: um actually, it's a funny question because, and this is. All tied up in my second book, but as soon as I sold Jello Girls, I was like, "Oh, I've got to write the next one!" Like I have this window of opportunity, you know, thanks to a book advance and and time um, to write a second one. Uh, and also, uh, you know, there's something very freeing as a as a writer struggling for a really long time to, you know get your work read and then to have someone actually pay for it. It's amazing. Um, so I was like, oh, I could do that again. <laughs> I actually have this tendency to torture myself by writing uh, personally about my life, but I i decided to write my second book on um, my, which is, again, sort of an interesting thing about lives, which is that there, I have a whole life that's not even in Jell-O Girls, but um, I grew up as a very competitive horseback riding uh, horseback rider. So I, um, wanted to write a book that sort of talks, it's sort of part grief memoir, part exploration of, um, competitive horseback riding, and also calling to task this idea of, uh, sort of a mythical bond between women and horses and, and the archetype of the horse girl in general. So the book, I still own the same horse that I had as a child. And, uh, with that horse at the age of 18 I ended up winning a world championship so the book chronicles that history alongside uh, a modern day or current uh, narrative thread wherein I try to take that horse who is now geriatric back to the same show where we once triumphed and win again and ultimately readers will discover what happens but um it was an interesting time in my life. My mother had just died, and I think I thought that if I went back and won again, maybe I could bring her back. So it's again, it's another sort of multi layered nonfiction text that I'm still trying to unravel. but um yeah that's that's my next one. and then after that, I'm thinking I might like to write a novel because it is quite exhausting to continually go back into the past and dig around. <laughs>
1: Yes, do something entirely fictional next time. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that.
1: That's incredible. So we can look for, uh, I assume it's not going to be called Horse Girls, but maybe it is.
0: No, I have no idea. I haven't. uh, It's not even in that stage yet, but I I hope somebody would would like to publish it. We'll see.
1: Uh, well, I mean, until that day comes, I think folks are going to be delighted by Jello Girls, which I should give the, the official information. Um, it debuts when this episode comes out today, which is going to be July 24th. Um, and I assume will be available wherever fine books are sold.
0: Yes, there's a digital book and you can also, I read the audio audiobook, So hopefully readers like the sound of my voice. You can hear it on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks.
1: Oh wow! Now I, I, you've just sponsored another question because I, I just love to know because I've never been able to ask a novel. A, well, not a novelist, but a writer who's um, narrated their own audiobook. How did you find the experience?
0: It was actually really moving and incredible. I, um, I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad they let me do it. Um, it was, it was exhausting. I mean, you, it's taxing to read your own work and and to read anything really for hours a day. It was actually quite moving somehow. I'm not exactly sure why, but by the end, I was I was crying. The producer was crying. Everybody was crying. So um, I, I enjoyed it. I really did. It was one of the best experiences I've had with this uh, publication process so
1: far. Oh, my goodness. Well, now I'm going to have to go and get the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, that was Allie Robottom, author of jell Girls, A Family History. Available today wherever fine books are sold. You can find out more about Allie on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. And if you're subscribed to our amazing newsletter, you've already been treated to a special additional Q&A with Allie, where she dives even deeper about her inspiration and motivation in writing this intimate personal history of the first family of Jell-O. Now the newsletter is really the best place to get all of these extra bonus tidbits from our episodes. Make sure you're subscribed today. It's easy to sign up and we promise we only send out good newsletters. Find out how to subscribe by visiting our website. And that's it for this edition of the Feasts Summer Series. Stay tuned for our next special episode. I mean, we've already covered historic cocktails and the dark side of Jell-O. Who knows what'll be next? Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Pod Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe. Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.